Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thank you so much for listening. My guest today is Lisa Ellen Niver. Before we get to that, a few announcements. One, of course, the website, TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there. On the homepage, you can see all the links for our social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc., etc., etc. Go there, click on those, like us, friend us, do what you got to do. I need more followers. I want more followers, and therefore, I want you. So join up to the Travel Tales Army and by going to the homepage and clicking on those. If you want to write me, it's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com, TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from listeners. Perhaps you think you'd be a great guest on the show, or you know somebody who would be as well. Let me know at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. If you're listening on iTunes, why not give us a good rating? That helps people find the show because it boosts our presence, and that would be a cool thing. So give us a few stars, maybe say a few nice things. I would appreciate it. As for the Lights Camera Switzerland competition, I did not win. There was a couple there that won pretty handily, and they were far ahead from the start. I didn't like the idea of showing the percentages while you're voting. I don't think that's a good thing. kind of steers people in a certain direction. I'm not bitter. But I'm just saying that uh, yeah, that's not cool. You don't do that in an election. I guess if you watch the news during an election, you'll kind of know the way it's swinging. But hey, that's neither here nor there. The bummer is I'm not going to be going to Switzerland this summer to host a television show. But I thank you if you voted for me. I do appreciate that. We'll get them next time. That doesn't mean I won't be traveling. I'll always be traveling. You know that about me. But if you voted for me, thank you very much. So let's get to our guest, Lisa Ellen Niver. She runs the We Said Go Travel website. And very successfully, I might add. Only met her briefly before the interview, so it was great to get to know her. She's been around the world a bit, and like me, and I'm guessing like you because you're listening, she likes to talk about it. And we were very lucky to have her. Please welcome the lovely and charming Lisa Ellen Niver. No one there can tell me how. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm here with Lisa Ellen Niver, as in Diver. I just found out I've been mispronouncing it this whole time. Uh, thank you for coming here. Thank you so much for having me. You are a busy person. You're never in town. You have 18 jobs, <laughs> and now you made it here. Thank you. We originally met at a, uh, I think it was the Himalayan travel restaurant. Massive. Yeah, the Travel Massive event. And have you been to the Himalayas? I have? I have not been. You have not yet? Have you been affected by this whole Nepal thing? I have, uh, I'm worried that I've never been, and I'm not going to see Kathmandu like so many people saw it, that it'll never recover the same way it was. Well, honestly, Nepal is an incredible place. And I did, when I was in Kathmandu, I actually spoke at the tourism board. I spoke to a group of Nepalese writers and readers. And I've been in touch with quite a few people. And recently, actually, someone reached out to me and said things are terrible in his village in Bhaktapur. And I connected him with the tourism board and also with a doctor's group because things are pretty bad there. Okay. That's a really happy way to start a conversation. Sorry. No, I'm, it's my fault. I brought it up. I'm bringing up an earthquake disaster. Uh, okay. It was a terrible disaster. It's horrible. It's horrible. Um, we should say, uh, first of all, who you are and why are you here and what do you do? Okay. Tell so, the folks who you are. Tell the folks. Niver. Give it up, Niver. <laughs> so I run We Said Go Travel, and I have been a traveler and a teacher on and off all my life. And now some ways my teaching and my traveling are coming together. I've been doing work as a social media consultant, and I'm going to do some Twitter training for some young lawyers before they start their summer jobs. Twitter training? Mm-hmm. Just telling them how to boil it down into 140 characters? 
Well, I actually thought it'd be better for this particular organization to Instagram first, but the executive director was like, we're going to do Twitter. And I said, great. (laughs) So that's what we're doing. But I've been working with them on their social media strategies. I've been working with a an outdoor mall and a law firm, which is funny because I'm like, I'm really good at travel. But understanding social media is confusing for people. And because I am a trained teacher, they like it how I explain it to them. Okay. Well, so let's see how you started out in that. You started out as a teacher. Yes. So are you a local uh, LA person? Are you a native? I've been living in LA on and off since I was three years old. So I would consider that a native. Okay, thank you. Okay, wow. You don't find too many of them out here. You Especially do Especially in LA. It's like finding a, a mermaid or something. Well, I'm part wow, mermaid because wow. I'm a diver. Yes, okay. I'm, we'll talk about that later because I'm a diver as well. I love scuba diving. Yes, me too. Okay, so now you're teaching. Yes. You went to college in California? For- I went to college in Pennsylvania. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. Ooh, well, Ivy. Yes. Well, I'm I'm very impressed. Thank you. And then after (laughs) Penn, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. So I went to medical school in San Francisco. Mm. And then I decided... How long did that last? I spent a semester at UCSF and then I went on leave for a year because all the people in the hospital were sick. And I was like, (laughs) huh. It's kind of a bummer. It was kind of a bummer. And I realized I spent my year leave... I was um, teaching and I worked at Planned Parenthood and I decided that I really was interested in science and education, but I just didn't necessarily need to be, I felt like I could do a lot more for people if everyone wore their seatbelt and stopped smoking. And I just didn't feel like I needed to go to medical school for that. <laughs> it's a huge commitment. You're talking about 12 years of your life or something, and then it's the, a lot of money. It's, uh, it's hard. It just seemed... Not right. And so I learned to scuba dive during my year sabbatical from medical school. And I thought, there's no way I'm going back. Where does one go on a year sabbatical? Well, I mean, I was I'm on... I'm guessing somewhere warm where you wanted to scuba dive. Well, I was on... I, <laughs> I did have a year sabbatical in Asia, but not then. That year, I just worked in San Francisco. I was on leave from school, essentially. I was working. Okay. So now you figure, like, teaching is your thing now. Yes. Okay. I love teaching. Okay. And then you came back to LA? I taught for almost probably seven years in San Francisco. And I, like I said, I had learned to scuba dive when I first graduated from college. But as a teacher, honestly, I couldn't really afford to go on too many great diving trips. So a friend suggested maybe I'd like to work at Club Med. Oh, here we go. Now this is getting interesting. Club Med. Uh-huh. Now Club Med, I've heard mixed things. It, ha- it has an interesting reputation. They're all true. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds so 80s, Club Med, doesn't it? It, That was like a punchline back then, like 80s and 90s. It was like, we're going to Club Med as a couple and we're going to swing. (laughs) Well, because I was a teacher, I worked in the children, the family villages. Yeah. So the singles villages definitely earned their reputation for being called Club Bed. (laughs) That was not a joke. uh, We used to have these meetings once a week with the chef de village, the the head of the village. And when I worked in the ski village, I worked in Colorado. The There was one week, Tatoon, that was the name of my uh, chef de village. He looked at the group of geos. Geos? The, geos is the, the workers. Okay. The guests are GMs. They're gentle guests and the workers are geos. So he looked at all the geos and he said, listen, next week, a lot of single women are coming and I want them to be happy. And I looked around the room and I thought, wow, this is so different than a staff meeting at school. Yeah. <laughs> Just, <laughs> we, you would never say that at school. So you weren't at a tropical island uh, location? Surprisingly, I, when I first, I went to Florida to interview for Club Med and I was going to work as in the kids program. And the lady said to me, you know, I see on your resume that you're a great skier. She goes, I know you want to go scuba diving. I know you want to be in the islands, but if you would do me this favor and go work in this, in Colorado, in the ski village, I'll owe you. And I, I looked at her, I said, oh, I really want to go scuba diving. And she said, why don't you take the weekend and think about it and get back to me? So I went back to San Francisco and I went on a dive trip in Monterey Bay. Okay. Which is freezing. Freezing. And I was a brand new diver and we were in a terrible storm. Oh. So I'm leaning over the side of the boat. I'm completely seasick. They kept feeding me medication. Wasn't helping me. I'm throwing up over the side of the boat. 
and I'm screaming out at the ocean, I'm moving to the mountains. <laughs> so that's how I ended up going to the ski village. How long was the commitment? Four months. Oh, okay. That's enough. It was not bad. You could handle it. Was it during ski season, right in the winter? Well, yeah. that'd be fun. It was fantastic. Which, where in Colorado? It's a Copper Mountain. Oh, yeah. It's not, it's not there anymore. Oh, no. They, there's a Copper Mountain Ski Resort. The Club Med's not there anymore. Oh, the Club Med, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the season I was there, they opened up um, one of the new bowls. I think it was called Red Red Rock, Red Bowl, Red something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we skied every single day. <laughs> like, you'd have a half an hour break from work, and you'd go, you know, hit the slopes. We, uh, it was a great job. What did you do? Handle the... You were with the kids, or you... Okay, so you... Did you have to give lessons and take them skiing? The kind? most hysterical thing. So the parents would drop the kids off. And a ski instructor and a kids instructor would take a group of kids out for the morning. The ski instructor would ski in the front and the kids club person ski in the back. So you skied all day. Then we came in. We fed the kids lunch. Then we went back out skiing. Then we came back in. I think the kids may have eaten dinner with their parents. I think they ate lunch with us. And then at night, everyone's in the show at Club Men. No matter what you do during the day, you're in the show. There's a show. Every night. Oh, okay. So I was you know, rehearsing. And at one point they were trying to teach me the running man. <laughs> and the girl in charge, whose name also happened to be Lisa, looks at me. She said, listen, this is never going to work. You just stand in the back. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay. Your lack of rhythm got you booted out of the show? There was just not, they were just like, this is, you're never going to learn this. I said, I, <laughs> I see that. But I was really good at the dating game. Oh, okay. So I had a, a club med for the dating game. All the women want to be these sexy, vampy characters. You know, okay. like one of wait. So wait a minute, you, but you're not with the kids anymore. This is with. This the, is at nighttime. Okay, the kids are in bed. They may or may not come to the show, but it's okay. It's, so during one of my friends, Monica, used to play this character, and she would say, like, the question would be on the dating game, "What would you bring to a desert island?" And she was like, you know, my whips, my chains, and you. Like she was out there. I played the nerdy librarian and I had my mascara was all askew and I had one sock up and one sock down and I had broken glasses. My parents came to visit and my friend said to my dad, oh, after you see Lisa in this show, you are going to want to send her like to modeling school. <laughs> so my dad thought they meant that I was going to come out and be so beautiful that I, that I am like a model. And I came out, I had painted one of my teeth so it looked like I was missing. I blacked out my tooth. My dad's a dentist. And I had, you know, my my lipstick going like running down my chin. So my dad was laughing so hard. All the staff in the back were taking bets if he's going to pee his chair. Because I looked so ugly. It was so funny. I had my braids like one up and one down and my teeth. Oh, it was so funny. So the thing was, my character always won. Whenever I was in the dating game, I won because right. everyone else was so scary. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me how it got from club med and teaching to being a travel professional like you are now. Where did that journey go? Well, after I worked two seasons for club med, I worked at Copper Mountain and I worked in the Bahamas, the island of Eleuthera. If you finish two contracts, you can go to any village in the world for two weeks for free. So I went to Sonora Bay to finally go scuba diving. <laughs> And while I was in Mexico, I happened to meet all these people on vacation from working on the cruise ship. And they were working, they made twice as much money as I did at Club Med, and the hours were much less. At Club Med, we were always on. You ate with the guests, you were in the show, you were working, 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 working. So club, cruise ship's also a lot of work, but compared to Club Med, it's less. <laughs> yeah. They're like, you have to work every day. I'm like, uh-huh, I'm good with that. And then they told me the salary. I'm like, I'm in. Because you actually got time off. Like uh, when I worked on the cruise ship, I worked on the ships all told almost seven years. Oh, doing what? Mainly in the beginning, I worked in the kids program. Right. And then when I first started, though, there was a rule. If the ship was in port, the children's program was closed. <laughs> so that was brilliant. If, we, if there was some activity to do, I wasn't working. That changed over time. But then I realized the assistant cruise directors made more money. And worked less hours. It was a theme. Mm-hmm. So I switched. And then I switched companies. I worked for Princess. I worked for Royal Caribbean. I worked for Renaissance. I worked for Princess. And in the end, I did sales. And I had like some more kind of sales, travel agent experience. 
And then not so long after September 11th, the, the industry changed and I came back and I was teaching again. Oh, okay. And then... Was that tough to do? That must have been... You've been halfway around the world by this time. And now you're back. In, this is in L.A., like school district? Mm-hmm. Wow. I taught at Culver City Middle School. I had a, Oh, junior high. How do you do that? High. How do you do that? That's like kids are the most obnoxious age ever. My grandmother taught like seventh, eighth grade English for 30-something years. I don't know how she did it. 36 kids at a time. <gasps> Some classes, half my kids were English as a second language. Oh. And some of my kids were in special day class or special ed all day long, except for science. For science, they got mainstream. So yeah. I'd have like a whole table from the special day classroom. Half the kids were English as a second language. And then I had a couple of groups in the back that were not probably going to make it to the end of the year. They were going to go to continuation school because they were the bad kids. Right. One of those kids, though, I, when you teach physics and chemistry in eighth grade, you also teach family life, which is what we now call sex ed. Family life? Mm-hmm. I think we used to call it sex ed. I've never heard the term family, family life. life. Yeah. So, family life. Family life. Do you have to get, because uh, like, I remember this was very controversial uh, when, because it might, it, right when I was coming of age, as it were, I think it was like fifth, sixth grade for us, they all of a sudden said, we have to take this uh, sheet home to our parents and they had to sign off on it. And I remember some kids, you know, they wouldn't do it. You know, and we, and we were like, oh, we get to watch films. It's going to be about sex. It's going to be great. We were very excited. As were the eighth graders. Yeah. Eighth seems there's, late. There's, they do different pieces in different grades. And we, I had a, a big piece about HIV and sexually transmitted diseases, even though somehow it's an abstinence program. And <laughs> I don't abstinence? Know. Yeah. Really? In L.A.? What will even more surprising at this particular school, we were grouped in houses. So all my kids had the same teacher for English and history and and math and science. We were able to kind of corral the kids better. So we figured out that about a third of the kids in our cohort were being raised by teenage parents. So we were older than all the parents that the teachers Maybe their parents should come in and take the class as well. Well, so the thing is you have to be really conscious when you're teaching sex ed to kids whose parents were teenagers when they were yeah, born. screwed up. Well, but you can't look at kids. <laughs> no, I know. No, no. I, had, I taught next to a lady who was like a super religious, righteous kind of right. fundamental. And so she caught one of my students in the hallway kissing her boyfriend. And she looked at the – they weren't supposed to kiss at school. And she told her that's what married people do. And so in, we had a lot of discussions that if a third of our kids are being raised by teen parents, they know that it has nothing to do with marriage. It has nothing to do with right or wrong. Like some teens have sex. And so we tried to be really sensitive to what do you say then? You know, yeah. you, you don't want to be some offensive. Teens have sex, like your mommy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like your mommy did. And you're here. Okay. Yeah, we so, could talk about this for an hour. Yeah, but, so, uh, okay. Anyway, so I taught, I taught, I came back from cruise ships and I started teaching. And then I ended up going, after I taught for a few years in LA, I ended up going away for a year with George. This is your husband? My ex husband. So George had the idea that he wanted to go away for a year. And he had that idea before we met. And we decided to go for a year and we decided while we were gone, we would keep a journal and think about writing a book. Now, this was uh, traveling uh, throughout the world or going to one place and saying, we're going to stay here. That trip was an 11-month trip. And we had some time or in the beginning in the South Pacific, but most of it was in Asia, mainly because of the budget. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. <laughs> so, I did it for three months, and two of it ended up being around Southeast Asia because you know, your money goes farther. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and I love it, too, so... That helps. Super interesting. And so you can dive. A lot. Yeah. yeah. So we we planned that trip and we came back and we did write the book. And I started reading about what do you do with a book? And every single thing I read said you have to have a platform. And that's when I started We Said Go Travel. So that was in 2010. And when I first started the site, I used to write once a week, every Sunday. And everybody said to me, you know, you're never going to get anywhere. And I said, well, that's great because I'm already nowhere. It's like not a big journey. <laughs> I'm already here. <laughs> I've made it. They're like, if you only write once a week, no one will ever find you. I was like, well, I'm not that good. So that's okay. Maybe I don't want a lot of people yet. I'm practicing. 
So I was, you know, growing the site and I started doing, I did a talk about Jewish Morocco and cause George and I had spent three weeks in Morocco on a different trip. And it was just interesting the way everything sort of spirals. Like I started the website to promote the book and then I did the talk. So I had written to the Jewish journal and I said, you know, I'm doing this talk at Stephen S. Wise Temple. It's about uncovering Jewish Morocco and can you help me publicize it? And they essentially wrote back, not in these words, we're not so interested in your talk, but would you like a column? <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, that's way better. Yeah. So yes, thanks. Good. <laughs> and it was all about travel. I, my column is, you know, jewishjournal.com slash we said go travel. And I could write whatever I want. But it was funny. At that point, I'd had we said go travel the website. And no one thought anything of it. All of a sudden, I could write for the Jewish Journal. People were like, oh, you're a writer? Yeah. I'm like, uh, not in a different way than I've been doing every week already. And they're like, oh, for the Jewish Journal? I'm like, oh, this means something more? <laughs> So basically writing for them helped publicize the website and vice versa. Yes. Everything built. Okay. But how did it come to um, like what you're doing now? It's like a a multi-platform kind of thing. You you got into video. You got a lot of video. You have a whole YouTube channel. And that came out of the website, I guess? Honestly, everything is – I've been very, very lucky to have a lot of people – kind of mentor me and take me under their wing. When I first, when we came back from the year trip and we started the website, I got involved with a group called Meet Plan Go, which was Sherry Ott and Michaela. And they, it was the year that I was involved was actually 2011. And they had 17 events on the same night across the United States and Canada. And each event was about doing these, you know, long-term career breaks. So for me, we ended up having 100 people at our event here in L.A., and my keynote speaker was Richard Banks, who's on PBS. Mm -hmm. And everything sort of happened like one thing led to the other. Like I agreed to run the event, and I was in touch with this lady. Do you know uh, Lisa DiNapoli? She's on KCRW. She was in Bhutan. No, She she has a book called Radio Shangri-La. Okay. So I wrote to her, and I was like, I love your book. Do you want to be part of my event? I'm going to give away the proceeds of the event to Bhutan, to your reading project. She was great. I'd love to be part of your event. She said, do you have a keynote speaker? I'll introduce you to Richard Banks. So last year I filmed twice for Orbits with Richard Banks. So it's just like, you know, you, he did me a huge favor being at my event and we've always stayed in touch. He's the judge for my travel writing contest. And okay. it just, you know, things kind of happen. You're just like, well, do you want to do that? Well, I had written to him once. I think I'm going to have a writing contest. And he sent me an email back. He said, I think I'm going to be the judge. (laughs) (laughs) So it just kind of evolved. The the YouTube channel, now I have 350 videos and about, I think, 300, well, over 300,000 views. But what happened, honestly, I was at the dentist. My dad's a dentist. And the hygienist was cleaning my teeth. And she said, you know, it's real nice that you write stuff. She said, but you're way more interesting in person. She said, I think you should do video. And I looked at her and I said, in my spare time, (laughs) like I'm teaching full time. You were still teaching with all this? At that point when she suggested this to me. Oh, okay. I've mainly, if I'm not away, if I'm here, I'm usually teaching. Did you have any skill in like video and know-how of like working cameras and editing? When she said this to me? Yeah. No. (laughs) So... I said, I said, I just was kind of flabbergasted, like, oh, yeah, I need a new skill. So I went home and I told George that Janet thought that we should do video. And he bought me a used flip camera on eBay. And he's like, take this. We're going to Taiwan. Just bring it. So we went to Taiwan with our little flip and I shot a lot of video. I didn't know what I was doing. And then I went back to school. I was teaching fifth grade at this. I was teaching science to kindergarten through sixth grade. And during fifth grade class, I looked out at my students and I said, you know, I took all this video in Taiwan and I don't know what to do with it. Just like very casually. I don't know why I even brought it up. So one of the girls, Hannah, came up to me. She said, you know, Miss Naira, if you want, I'll teach you how to do iMovie during recess. I was like, (laughs) During recess. "Uh I'm like, well, thanks, Hannah. That'd be helpful. There's something humbling about getting lessons from a six-year-old in anything or a sixth grader in something. So Hannah sat with me for 10 minutes 
She opened up iMovie and she's like, don't use this, do this, drop it here, blah, blah, blah. Okay, go. And I was like, all right. And so I'm like, a fifth grader can do it. So that was how I made, that's how all my videos are in iMovie. I have now actually taken a couple classes and read a few books. Like I read Lisa Lubin's book. Do you know her? She's an Emmy Award winning video person. Anyway, now I'm a little bit better and practice makes better. That's how I got started in video. Janet said I should. George bought me a flip and I just keep doing it. And a sixth grader taught you. (laughs) Fifth grader. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so now we're going to get to, uh, we're going to tell one more thing about the site and then we're going to talk about your individual stories. Okay. Um, what, What do you want out of the site and what was the plan from the beginning and where do you see it going? In the beginning, the site was supposed to promote the book. In the end, no one cares about the book and the site's doing amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So I think sometimes you start a journey and you think you're going somewhere and then you see where you end up. Like when I was in India, I was in uh, Kolkata, no, uh, Connarch at the Sun Temple and they were having the 30th, the 30th year of the Sand Art Festival. And it was giant and it was international. And I was looking around and I thought, the first year, 30 years ago, somebody looked at someone else and said, we're going to have a sand art festival. And everyone else said, you're so dumb. And now it's something. And that's actually how a lot of things have happened at We Say Go Travel. Like I, that day I decided to have a writing contest. And next week I'm opening the eighth contest and I've had 1,700 writers from 75 countries. Wow. Yeah, it's really grown into something. It's a kind of big travel contest on the internet. I have a lot of great writers. I've you know met people through the contest. There's a bunch of uh, teenagers in Nigeria that want to travel with me. And I've made friends with a woman in Islamabad who's written for me a few times. It's You don't know what's going to happen. Like I, for the first contest, I was just like, I hope there's 10 people. <laughs> Please let there be at least 10. So the first one, we had 60. That's great. Mm-hmm. Generally, I have like between two and 300 entries, and I have professional judges and cash prizes. And What's the big prize? What do they win? $500. Okay. A lot of people share really lovely stories. So we have three contests a year now. It's going on right now, one of them? The next one opens soon, May 18th. Okay. And they can go to the website and see that out, and that is We Said Go Travel, and they just put in writing contest. And- Yes. Okay, perfect. How long do they have to be? How long are these stories? The entries are 500 to 800 words. They have to be previously unpublished, and they're, they need to be on the theme. The, the contest that ends Valentine's Day, the theme's inspiration. The contest that's about to start ends July 4th, and the theme's independence. And then I have a contest in the fall that ends on Thanksgiving, and the theme's gratitude. Do they have to be uh, nonfiction accounts? I mean, can they be, do they have to be personal in um, general, most people share a personal true story, but I've had everything. I've had poems. I've had songs. I've had not that much fiction, although I think that it would fit. I, I've had a couple fiction stories where someone will say like, you know, this tale was inspired by my journey in Cambodia, or this is what I imagined happened in Laos. And those are very interesting. I actually, because the contest has now gotten so big, I like it when something's a little bit different. It's like... Most travel stories, they're in a different place, but they have sort of a similar run. So it, I think it's super it's great every once in a while have something so creative, like a poem or a song. Or No, that's great. Um, okay, now we've gotten the business out of the way. We know your history. Now tell me about you. When did the diving start? And uh, where do you see that going? Is that going to be another side business? Or is this a part of We Said Go Travel? Or will you want to... Because Niver and Diver, they go right together. They do. I I learned to scuba dive in San Francisco in Monterey Bay. And, and you threw up over the side. We got that. <laughs> that was terrible. I can't believe I told <laughs> you that story. But that is why I ended up going to Club Med. Um, Give me the your best dive experience. My best? If you can pinpoint one. I'm going to pick two. Okay. One of them was in Sipadan. I don't know where that is. Sipadan is uh, Malaysian Borneo. Oh, okay. Near the Philippines. And I literally dove with a tornado of barracuda. 
There were just hundreds of them near Barracuda Point. And it's an area that the diving is so good. The dive masters claim to be bored because they'd be on the dive and like shark, turtle, shark, (laughs) turtle. But the Barracuda, that was amazing. And the other one that I loved was in Palau. Okay, I got to go to Palau. That's oh my, my next dive spot. Everybody's telling me to go there, and I've, I've dove around it. The Philippines, I've dove in Vietnam and, and Australia. So i got to go to Palau. I'll hook you up. Okay. There's a lot of amazing things in Palau. But the place that I dove was called Blue... Oh, no, I forgot the name. Blue... I'll find out. But anyway, <laughs> what happens is it's very strong current, and they take you down... And they put a clip on your BCD and they literally clip you into a dead part of the reef or like some rock. You have like a like a carabiner. You clip mm-hmm. in and then you sort of fly like a kite in the current. You just stay there. And it's like being on a Disneyland ride except instead of watching It's a Small World, there's sharks and rays and like there's bubbles. So like the, all these fish were playing in the bubbles in my hair and <laughs> – I have great video. Someone was clipped in near me of all these fish, and it was incredible. It was so much fun. Wow. And then you just watch the movie go by. It's almost like a wall dive, but you just <laughs> like, you just watch the movie go by. Blue Corner. That's what the it's called. The Blue Corner. Blue Corner was amazing. Wow. How deep are you at that? Like, uh, maybe 40 feet, I want to say. A lot of little stuff or big things? Big stuff. Sharks? It was kind uh, of, we were like on the edge of a wall. So you could see a lot of stuff down below you. There were shark, tons of sharks. I remember there's just like sharks and wow. porcupine fish. And oh my God, it was such a fun time. I came up so essentially high off that dive. Like I just got on the boat and they're like, <laughs> wow, was it good? Because I was on a boat that was mixed, some snorkelers and some divers. And, and I we were just like, Wow, the, what an amazing thing. So uh, that's the, your best experiences. Mm-hmm. Give me your most disappointing ones. What, what place does not live up to the hype in terms of diving in your mind? Mm. I mean, when I'm in the water and on scuba, I'm pretty happy. Um, I have a lot of... You know, I had a, a near miss kind of experience pretty deep in Curacao and I was super deep on a wreck in Vanuatu and I really had to think through that panicking wasn't an option because we were in a – we had no access overhead. We were inside a wreck and we were very deep and I I thought through that if things went badly, we wouldn't make it. So that was sobering. But it wasn't bad. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah, I've been in those situations, whether it's a cave or a wreck, where your curiosity gets the better of you and you just keep going. And you go, wait a minute, I got to turn around here eventually. And if I get caught or I get lost, yeah, scary. It was, you know, it's good memory that, you know, good reminder. And you have to be safe and you have to listen to your buddy and all that stuff. But it was most of the time, honestly, if I'm, I could be in the water at eight feet and be thrilled. I just love to be on scuba. Do you take your own, how much equipment do you have? Do you- I had a lot of equipment because I had done, as a teacher, I was able to go on a scientific expedition with Earthwatch. Oh. Yeah, in Belize. So I had all my own gear. But right now I mainly just travel with a mask and snorkel. Yeah, it's everything else. It's such a pain in the ass. Especially now. And when they're charging you like a million dollars for your luggage and yeah. So what do you think of Belize? I dove down there. I liked it. Uh, the blue hole is a little, it's cool. I'm glad I did it, but uh, it's, you know, there's not much to see when you're, when you're down there. And it's so fast. You go so deep, you're only down there for like 15 minutes or something. I actually didn't dive the blue hole. You didn't? Because I was there for this very specific research project. Oh, they okay. were looking at, we were on an outer island looking at um, coral bleaching and we were identifying corals. So I missed some of that diving. But it was it was um, it was really interesting to be part of a research expedition, and the people that were I was with, I've stayed really close with. I've uh, been diving probably like you. I've been diving for like twenty five years, and it's really kind of it's it's the hardest thing to see is just the damage I've seen in twenty five years to the reefs around the world. Where do you see the worst? Where have you seen the worst damage from like? 
Oh, I went to I went to Cozumel. Uh, like was one of the first places I ever dove. Then I was back there a few years ago, and I said to the dive master, "Is it me? Because I remember like being blown away by the colors here and everything else. It's, it just doesn't seem." This, he's like, "No, it's it's really bad. It's really damaged and grayed out." And I've heard that a lot about Cozumel. The place I most noticed it was in Gili Trawagan in Indonesia. I was there. I dove there. In Lombok, yeah. Yeah. And so I was there, and then I was back a few years later, and I was there the first time right when they introduced the ghillie cat, which was the fast way to get from Bali to the ghillies. Mm-hmm. And then when I was back three years later, I was like, is this the same place? Well, so really. That was sad. Yeah. But they've also had issues in that area with dynamite fishing, so that definitely destroys oh. the reef. Yeah, and I was just in Zanzibar last year. And, That's on my list. Uh, yeah. But yeah, for all the I read about it, it was like, oh, it's great diving and stuff like that. I was like, where's the fish? And they said it's just being so overfished. That's you know? awful. Yeah. And they said, you know, even ten years ago you come down here, you would be guaranteed to see, you know, sharks and, and turtles and all this stuff, and they'd just been overfished. I've always wanted to go to Zanzibar because in one of the Muppet movies they talked about meeting the Zanzibarbarians. <laughs> My whole life. I get all my travel tips from the Muppets. <laughs> you know, they do have some life lessons, those puppets. <laughs> but yes, I always thought that was so funny, the Zanzibarbarians. Uh, well, I mean, are you active in, you said you did this thing in Belize. I mean, are you active in any kind of organizations that are trying to save the reefs or the water things? When I was teaching, I was very active with uh, Heal the Bay and another group that's here locally that's worked a lot with the marine protected areas and my students and i did a lot of writing about the conflict with um the minerals in congo and i've had a few projects on the website around um one project was with the uh, getting solar cookers for refugees in darfur and lately i think of my next right now i'm i've been trying to help some people in nepal like we talked about in the beginning and i think my next project's actually going to be with this global organization called save a child's heart they bring children from third world countries to israel and the kids would die if they don't have a heart operation and a lot of the countries they don't have a pediatric cardio surgeon and for $10,000 they save a child's life Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. They say in U.S. or Canada, it would be hundreds of thousands. It's pretty impressive. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's great. Okay, now, your favorite destination that you could go back to over and over and over and over again? Thailand. Okay. No question. That's up there with me, too. Yeah. So I love Thailand. There's a lot of places I would pick. You know, like I loved Mongolia. Definitely Mongolia is a place... I, I, I really resisted going because it was the end of a long trip. It was like month 11. I was like, I will not go on one more place. I will not go <laughs> one more place. And then I loved it. But for me, Thailand is just, it's like so easy there. The people are so nice. It's beautiful. I love the food. The food alone. The food's yeah. always an issue. Yeah, I, I love the food. Snorkeling, beach. And then if you want, you know, you can go hang out in Chiang Mai, get great culture. You're, I don't, I don't hate saying least favorite, but one place you're okay if you never go back to. Hmm. That is a good question. Somewhere I would not go back to. Or was there some place that you were really disappointed in, in terms of like, you were really pumped up to go and then like, eh, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I'm trying to think. Most places I try to find something good. <laughs> like a lot of places surprise me. Like I was worried at one point to go to Colombia and I went there and I was like, I could live in Cartagena. This place rocks. I really want to go there. Oh my God. I love Cartagena. Yeah. Yeah. It looks beautiful. And La Guajira, beautiful up in the north. You have to sleep in a hammock. And I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to sleep in a hammock. <laughs> like, well, that's your choice. I think I'll I'm going to like it. <laughs> I can sleep in a hammock every day, I think. But you got to have mosquito netting, I would hope, over you. Yeah, absolutely. When yeah. were you there? Uh, in Colombia? Yeah. 2010. Oh, yeah. looks so great. Mm-hmm. And then there's some places, you know, like I was in Burma and Myanmar and I guess like two th- in the early, like maybe 2002 or so when I was on the cruise ship. And then I was back there in 2012. And 
I wonder now what it's like. You know, like I think one of the things is, you know, how much are, how quickly are things changing? Yeah. A friend of mine who's been there just told me that. He said, you know, if you go there now, he went like 10 years ago and uh, it's not going to be the same. You're not going to see it the way I saw it, you know, he said, because it's just changing so much and opening up. I think that's true. You know, like you said, like the dive destinations, some of them are getting overfished and overdove and not protected. I think that's the thing less than, you know, a place that disappoints me than a place that I just wish that, you know, like, how could I fix this? Or how, what what do they need? Or, you know, some of the places like in Lumbuck, you're like, what if we just had fishing, you know, boat buoys, that would help. Yeah. So they, a lot of places seem like they're working on those things. Give me the crazy, speaking of food, give me the craziest thing you've ever eaten overseas. <laughs> I was in the uh, night market in Chiang Mai with oh, my God. friend Tyler. I know that one. And Tyler's walking around. Tyler was living in Thailand at that point. And he looks at me and they had fried crickets. Yep. And Tyler goes, these taste just like Lay's potato chips. <laughs> And honestly, I'm not that adventurous for food. But I'm like, okay, maybe I believe you. And he literally picks one up and he hands it to me. So I put it in my mouth and I was fine until like the little leg touched my lip. <laughs> and then I just completely freaked out. I'm like, oh my God, I'm eating a bug. Now these are like, I had one there too. And the thing is they, they stir fry them into submission. So if you fry anything enough, you can almost... You know, you can eat anything. Almost. I think it was more just like knowing that it was. A yeah, light. you feel. Yeah, I get it. So that was a, a funny moment where I was just <laughs> like, "Ooh, I don't know about this. Have you ever had any uh, like uh, medical emergencies or anything overseas? Have you had to get the. Fortunately, I've been very lucky to be healthy on my travels. And I have. I did have some great medical care in Bangkok, just I had been traveling for so long, I just went for routine medical care. And I was so impressed with the international hospital that, you know, it was probably a tenth or less of the cost I would pay in the US. Yeah. And instead of a technician, I had the actual doctor. So I found the care to be really fantastic. Yeah, we got a great system here, don't we? It's fantastic. <laughs> Needs no improvement. I know, oh, I just got the bill God. for my health insurance. So I couldn't agree more. Oh my God. Um, so you're not teaching anymore right now. I made a decision this year for 2015. I'm not teaching. I'm working full-time on the website. That's exciting. Yes. And in February I got invited. I spoke two nights at a wealth management firm. They do classes for their clients. They normally have estate planning or tax. They said, we want to kick off the year with something fun. Will you come talk about your 10 favorite trips? And I think part of the reason they found me is I've been writing uh, for USA Today in the 10 best section. So I think that might have been part of how they had this idea about the 10 top trips. Okay. But I had the best time because, you know, when you're teaching, a lot of times you get interrupted. And for me to go and speak and talk about 10 trips I loved, I actually talked about a lot of the ones we've talked about. I talked about Palau. I talked about Sipidan, Burma, and... A couple of people asked questions, but I didn't get interrupted mid-sentence, which is so different. <laughs> so, and they paid me. What? I know. That's great. Yeah. And they asked me to come back. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. Um, but did you have, do you have children or you don't have children? I do not have children. Okay. Well, that makes the travel uh, much easier. Yes. Um, okay. So I'm trying to think of, uh, we, we covered your medical emergencies. Yes. Not even food poisoning? I was, I did in Indonesia once in Jakarta, I uh, was very sick and I, that was when I was still with George and he was insistent that I take antibiotics and I resisted for, I think three full days. And finally he looked at me like, I don't care what you say today, <laughs> you start taking antibiotics. And then I got better. Well, I haven't heard great things about Jakarta. It seems like a very hard place. The traffic. I mean, the, there's traffic that's bad in L.A., but... No, there's, there's nothing. There's Asian traffic, and then there's L.A. traffic. It's, yeah. It was ridiculous. We were supposed to be somewhere by, like, 5 o'clock, and about, you know, 7.30, we were maybe halfway, and we pulled over to have dinner, and then the van literally broke down. Like, the lights went out, and it was 10 o'clock at night, and then it started to pour, and it was, you know, like 
Christmas and Muslim New Year, and it was a yeah. disaster. I had that in Manila as well. I oh, wasn't, the I wasn't a fan. terrible in Manila. I was not a fan. Did you get to go to Cebu? Yes. I like Cebu. Uh, I spent a lot of time in their in their airport, oh. unfortunately. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was... I don't, I don't have good memories of the Philippines. I saw some friends there and did some diving and uh, that, but the Philippines could be so much better if their food was good. And it isn't. <laughs> I did get to it swim with whale sharks in Oslob near Cebu. It's a new attraction. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I, I uh, saw whale sharks down in Panama. Oh. And uh, boy... I'd love to see more. There's a place, I guess, in Mexico that uh, they migrate to every year. Or so you could go there and there's just tons of them. They're so awesome. Mm-hmm. You can just sit there and snorkelers can see them because they're so high up that you could... Uh, it's like a bus going by you, a graceful bus. That is also how I describe it. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. It's wild. So... um no uh, scary border crossings or any kind of like... We had a funny border crossing going from Cambodia into Laos that it's in that particular border, you have to get the visa in advance. Yes. And many of them, you can get it there. So we were crossing towards Don Det and there were people with us like in the van that were from Russia. And oh boy. They didn't need a visa. Yeah. I was like, why don't you need a visa? And they're like, the <laughs> communist friends. I'm like, yes, okay. Yes, they're our pals. So that was uh, just so fascinating, you know, like people just to learn about how it's so different. You know, you go to a different border of the same country, you don't need to do it in advance. You're from a different country, the rules are different. The price is different. We went from, um, I was on a safari, we went from Kenya to Tanzania, I was in this big group, and mm-hmm. we're going over the border. And uh, for everybody else on this, people from all over, you know, everybody else getting through their visas were like $50. Mm-hmm. But for Americans, it was 100 And I was like, you sons of bitches. In China, I remember the American fee being much different than yeah. everybody else. Yeah. We get American prices a lot of times. But on the flip side, we get to go to a lot of places that uh, they can't. You know, Croatia, there's one of the reasons why uh, there's not that many Russians in Croatia visiting because they need a special visa. And it's hard for them to get, and I guess it's expensive. And for us, we just go right in. I think it's one of it's an interesting lesson that you know how does it work? Who does get a visa? Who needs a visa? How yes. long can you stay? Americans, we have a great advantage, and we can go. There are very few places we can't get in, and uh, so few Americans take advantage of it. You know, what do you tell people that don't go many places that and when they see as much as you travel and everything mm-hmm. else. And I go through this as well. They almost have this knee jerk thing that they thinking that they can't do it. You know, I know there's mm-hmm. fear that's part of it, but it's almost like we don't allow ourselves as Americans and go, Oh yeah, I could do that. Why can't I take three weeks off or four? You know, it's a lot of fear. I think, don't you think? Yes. I think that we, people are, not just afraid, they're also, it's going to sound weird, but I think they're afraid to be afraid. Yeah. And so I've, I've been listening to Brene Brown's talks on vulnerability. And one of the things she talks about is that we often equate vulnerability with weakness and we don't like that. And I find a lot of people, you're right, they're afraid, they don't have the time, they don't have the money, they won't know what to do. And instead of just kind of embracing that, we just sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that I understand fear of the unknown. I understand not having money or the vacation time from work. What I don't understand ever is the curiosity. You Mm. know, people who don't have the curiosity, you know, it's like, really, you've seen photos of London your whole life. You never wanted to go. (laughs) No, I'm good. And that, 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 yeah, I don't get that. I I never, I don't get. Well, I do think that's one of the great things about, you know, having a travel website and being a teacher is I know when I was teaching and I would share the stories of my trips with my students, they would all be so excited. Like, we are going to go to Samoa. Like, <laughs> okay. You know, like parents would call me like, why does my daughter want to go to Nicaragua now? I'm like, uh, <laughs> is that bad? <laughs> yeah. Or I, I showed the kids pictures of stupas in Sri Lanka and then gares in Mongolia when I was doing a unit on, uh, 
it was a unit on forces, but we were talking about architecture. And we were talking about in America, buildings are generally square and rectangle. But around the world, some places have round buildings. And so I was actually telling the kids about – I forget which way it was. I think I was telling them about the stupas in Sri Lanka. And a first grader raised their hands. Well, you know, Miss Niver, uh, in Mongolia, they have those round houses too. I'm like, good memory. <laughs> <laughs> so I think those kids are going to grow up and be like, I want to go stay in a gear like Miss Niver. Or, you know, why do they – Like, why is my temple not round like a stupa? And I think – some of the curiosity you're talking about, unfortunately, in school, we stomp out. I do think, you know, Sir Kenneth Robinson talks a lot about how schools kill creativity. And I, I sadly have to say that I think that he's right. And I think that we, we don't always encourage people to think differently or outside the box or what would it be like if I didn't just see the picture of Big Ben, but I was actually there in London. Or teaching simple geography, mm. which American kids seem to be so far behind on, like trying to find even America on a world map. That's sad. Isn't it? Yeah. And you're right there in the front lines. You must see this all the time. Right? Well, one, once I was doing a lesson, and I think it was when I was teaching about, oh, I wanted to do a lesson. I, I was back from Morocco. I, wanted to, I was teaching at a Jewish school, and I was trying to give the kids a reference so I said, you know, I, was, I had a map of Egypt, a map of Africa, and I was starting with we were talking about Egypt because it was after Passover. I said, Egypt is in Africa, and then I was going to say like Morocco, and all the kids went, "What?" And I was like, we, "This isn't the lesson." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "It's the lesson now, I guess." Yes, uh, maybe we should back it up a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I had to do, and so I ended up. It wasn't my lesson for all of my classes because I taught seven grade levels, but it ended up being my lesson that week. I'm like, let's talk about Egypt. Yeah, and there's a North Africa, and then there's a Sub-Saharan Africa, and they're quite different. Well, they all thought Egypt was in the Middle East because that's the context of how they hear about it. Right, and it's referred to that, you know, as... It's not, it's not an awful mistake, but it, it's not accurate, and... So that was interesting to me when I tr I was trying to give them the reference, you know, Morocco's near Egypt, and it turned out the lesson was Egypt's in Africa. So yes, I yes. think that a lot of people don't have some basic geography. I mean, I always tell people, get the placemats for your kids with the world map. Like, that's not so hard. Yeah, that's a good way to start. Um, oh, I, I forgot to ask you about Morocco, because mm. that's really high on my list, and I want to go. And so, thumbs up? You enjoyed it? I loved it. I spent a few weeks there and I, I could definitely go back. I missed a lot of places, but the being on the camel in the, in the dunes was amazing. Um, Egypt's on my list too. I still haven't been to Egypt and that gets mixed results from a lot of people. I, I think that being able to see places like the pyramids in person is incredible. Yeah. I mean, I got to do that. But you were you were recently in, in Ireland, or last year you were in Ireland. Did yeah. you get to go to Newgrange? No. So I went to Newgrange. I was in Ireland for the very first time in March. Oh, really? Uh-huh. And Newgrange is 5,000 years old. Where is that? It's about an hour and a half outside of Dublin. Oh, okay. And when we were in the this, it's a tomb, the, the guide says, let's take a minute of just to be silent and stand here. He says, you know, it's not every day you're in a 5,000-year-old building. <laughs> yeah. Is it the Druids? It's the um, That was the, the pre-Celtic. Yes. Yes. It's, they call it a mini Stonehenge because during winter solstice, the light comes through the roof box. But the I think places like that, like to be in Egypt or uh, where was I? Or, you know, like when I was in China, I stayed in a hotel. The translation of where we stayed was the thousand year old hotel. And then recently I was in Santa Barbara, which is so nice. I got to stay at the Kimpton yeah. in Santa Barbara. Really <laughs> nice. This building is 50 years old. Ooh. I, I went to the old Santa Barbara mission, which is like 1796. <laughs> yeah. Americans are, are fascinated with age. Usually when they get, they it's, it's really blows us away. That's why we love castles so much when we, when we go to Europe and things it's like, this isn't quite as old as where I was last month. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, uh, Ireland, what'd you think? I had such a good time. I had never been and I got invited to be in Dublin for the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Oh, wow. And somehow they made a decision that the international media should be in the parade. You were on a float? 
I was on a bus. Oh, my god! A double-decker gosh. bus. That's hilarious. With Chris McGinnis. Do you know him from Travel Skills? He works a lot with Johnny Jet. No, no, he, I don't know. He lives in San Francisco. So okay. he was on my trip and a bunch of guys from um, Ask Men from Montreal. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Everybody's sober, I'm, I'm guessing. It was really... They don't drink during the parade. Right. But you should, Really? Really. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was huge. It was it was really fun. I was standing there with Chris. We were waving on the top of this double-decker bus. And he, yeah, I looked at him. I said, why are we on the bus? Why are we in the parade? Because who cares? Keep waving. Yes. <laughs> that happened to me when I did the uh, Mardi Gras parade down in, in Biloxi, uh-huh. Mississippi. And it was the same thing. It was all media. On, on, we're around a float, and I'm throwing beads at people. And I'm like, I don't know why I'm here, but this is all right. This was, is kind of fun. It was really fun. <laughs> it was just kind of a funny moment where I was like, uh. See, I'm from like, I'm, I grew up in Chicago, where St. Patrick's Day is, is Giant. massive. So I'm wondering, I want to compare the two. I'm wondering if it's, it might be even bigger and uh, more drunken in Chicago and Boston and places like that. I think it is. In Dub- We've bastardized it. In, in Dublin, they said it was half a million. And honestly, they said the night before was the bigger night out than the night of because that was the day off and the next day wasn't. Yes. Everybody's hung over during the parade. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. it was It's like Thanksgiving. <laughs> exactly. Um, finally, I think we should – well, we've talked a lot. We've got to know you. Um, tell us about your next year coming up and uh, where you think the next few years are headed for you. The year coming up, I definitely um, – I'm going to keep doing my sort of social media travel teaching. I have – I'm going to do the Twitter talk I told you for the training and I'm going to speak again for my – wealth management friends. So I'm definitely looking at doing more, you know, strategic social media consulting. I'm thinking that I might be traveling to Iceland. Oh, I always wanted to go there. I have always wanted to go there. So it was on my list. I had really, really wanted to go to Bermuda. So I went to Bermuda last year. I filmed it with Orbitz and then I got to go to Ireland in March. So I think Iceland's my next big trip. You're all islands. You're all about the islands this year. It's mm-hmm. and- you can do Iceland in the winter or summer kind of thing. I think summer. Yeah. I want, and I'm my big, in the next few years, my big goal, like we said, was Antarctica. Oh, yeah. My last, my final continent. I know. I really want to see Antarctica. We got to do that, but on someone else's dime. <laughs> That's the key. Let's okay. get orbits to pay for that. And if you need someone to hold the camera, I'm okay. in. Okay, we definitely need better sound. <laughs> the, uh, and for the website... We're ramping up the We Said Go Travel writing contest. It's getting the whole site has a new look and just finalizing a new logo. So I think that over the next couple of years, the contest is going to really grow. So that'll be exciting, the contest. And I, I really like being able to publish people. A lot of people that are in the contest have never been published before. And I love hearing from them. They're just so excited to have the opportunity. Okay, get the uh, plugs out. Give us the names of all the websites and the YouTube oh. addresses and all the URLs and whatever. Everywhere on everything is We Said Go Travel. So Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere is We Said Go Travel. And then the contest is on the homepage of We Said Go Travel. Okay. Well, that's easy. Mm-hmm. Finally, what do you think all this um, travel that you've done and seeing so much of the world... How has it changed you as a person and how you look at people or maybe how you teach or how has it changed you the way you see things? I have two good examples for you. I think it has changed me significantly. So one thing that happened when I was teaching in Brentwood, one day the power went out, the lights went off and the kids looked at me like, oh my God, there's no power. And I said, well, actually a lot of places that I've been, they don't have power. And actually, we actually talked about Kathmandu. When I first got to Kathmandu, the people said to me, oh, we have, we have so much more power now. I said, really, tell me more about that. Well, we used to have 12 hours of electricity a day, and now we have 13. And I said, that is more. Yes. <laughs> yes. 13 is more than 12. And I told the story to the kids, and they said, people don't have power? I said, no, no, some people don't have power. And I told them about being in Mongolia, where on the top of the gear, they had a solar panel 
connected to a car battery. That was how they charged their cell phone. <laughs> They're like, they can't plug it in? No. To, to what? It's a tent. And then the other thing I thought was really interesting when I was in India, I was reading a book and the local author was talking about why Westerners are so confused. And he said, listen, in the West, in America, you look at celebrities and they have money and they have cars and they have fame and you think, oh, I wish I was them. He said, in India, we don't think like that. We walk down the street and we look at someone who's living on the street or missing a limb or has a problem or doesn't have anywhere to live and we think, thank God I'm not you. I think, you know, neither is so great, the extremes, but I do think it's very helpful to, to go around the world and come back to America. I came back to America after the end of my trip. I was in Mongolia in the desert in a gear and in an 11-day van trip, we showered twice. We never had running water. And my my family said that was a really good last place to visit because I came back and I had clean towels and hot water and I could drink the water out of the tap and I felt really so happy. Life seemed so easy. So I think that that perspective is something that we miss a lot in the U.S. It humbles you, you know. That's one thing I always get from it. And like you said, one of the first things I do when I get home, I drink out of the, the water fountain in the airport. I was like, man, I haven't been able to do this for months. I don't have to buy a bottle or, or filter it. Through. I'm not going to get dysentery. And, and then when I see people buying bottled water in America, it's like, you don't need to do that. It's, yeah, I know. Oh, that's a discussion for another day. But thank you so much for coming in here. That was uh, it was nice to meet you fully. We kind of met, but well, thank say. you for including me in your program. I'm honored to be here. No, that's great. And if you ever need, uh, like I said, someone to <laughs> hold your luggage in, uh, or uh, I'll help you with your scuba tank. I'll be a scuba buddy. I'm a good scuba buddy. I'm certified, you know. That's better than certifiable. <laughs> oh, I'm that too. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. 